0: It had this label, but it also, from their perspective, had a great taste perspective. And we took it to consumers and consumers tried it. They kind of liked it. There were some slight differences in the color because, you know, there were less artificial ingredients and things in it. So, you know, some of the the color was not quite bright enough or some different things. And then when we actually exposed them to the labeling and said, hey, what do you think about this food label? The whole thing fell apart. Like, this is not healthy. I don't like this. It doesn't taste good anymore. And you're we kind of like, well, what do you expect the clean label to be? Because this is, ultimately, this is a pretty clean label. And what it boiled down to is that clean label to certain co- groups of consumers means identifiable ingredients that I would find in my pantry. So instead of the chemical composition of something, they would rather it read flour. So instead of the, the chemical components of flour, they want it to just say flour.
1: What's up, my friend, and welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, celebrity trainer, and high-performance health coach, Ted Rice. This is a podcast for men and women who are looking to boost their energy and upgrade their health. So get ready to learn proven health, fitness, and mindset strategies to unlock your full potential. And today, I've got a really special episode for you. I have Lisa. Now, Lisa is actually a friend of mine. She's been a coaching client. And what she's here today to do is to talk to you about the insider secrets of the food industry, because we hear the food industry, they're you know, this nefarious entity, right? Big food and big food and big pharma are connected and big foods trying to sell you poisonous food that makes you fat so that they can pass you off to their friends in big pharma to sell you drugs to manage the diseases that are coming from eating all the bad food. Well, there might be a kernel of truth to that, but the the reality is, is there's a lot more gray area and there's a lot more that you should know about your behavior and how you are the one that affects big food. Because the reality is, if you don't buy food, they can't sell it to you, period. Okay. Now they can use marketing techniques and they can do things that are, you know, sometimes shady for lack of a better word, but At the end of the day, you're the one who is buying it. And I I also want to talk about the food companies that are trying to do the right thing, but you are stopping them from doing the right thing. And you'll hear exactly what I'm talking about when we get into this episode with my friend Lisa. So you're going to learn all that and more. I had to get Lisa on after speaking to her a couple of times in person and over the phone and just... She was telling me about what was going on and how things change in the food industry and how we as consumers have a tremendous amount of power over what a food company does because that's kind of the beauty of capitalism. It's determined by the market, right? Supply and demand. So you're gonna learn all that and more. And uh before we get to that, just wanna tell you I've put together a new masterclass in case you haven't heard some of my other episodes. And this is the best masterclass I've ever done. It's really dialed in. If you haven't been getting results last month or the month before that for most people, I want you to hop on over to legendarylifepodcast.com slash free to watch my free masterclass. The only five steps you need to transform your body. You're going to learn so much from this masterclass. It's, like I said, the best one that I've done yet. And I know I always say that because it's always true. And this one is just by far the best. We'll give you a lot of clarity on exactly the things that you need to get results. So again, if you haven't been getting results in the past month or so, go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash free and go watch the masterclass now. All right, on to the interview with my friend, Lisa McGurk. Lisa McGurk, welcome to the Legendary Life Podcast.
0: Hi, Ted. It's great to be here.
1: Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this because you have some incredible insight that you're going to share with us today.
0: Thank you. I'm excited.
1: Yeah, and for those of you listening, Lisa, well, why don't you tell everyone what you do.
0: Great. Thanks, Ted. So I work for Blueberry. We are a marketing and sensory research company based outside of Philadelphia. And essentially what we do is we work with a lot of manufacturers, particularly food, health and beauty and wellness, major Fortune 500 companies and smaller players as well. And we really help them work on their innovation process and develop new products. So uh, we work with teams from marketing, innovation, R and D, food science, and we do a lot of that kind of stuff behind the scenes to help new products come to market, and to also, you know, ensure product quality and and other stuff of things that are already on the market. So, it's it's really interesting, a lot of cool stuff.
1: Yeah, we I asked you to be on the show because of some of our conversations where you started talking about what you do and the knowledge you have from being inside the food industry and i was like wow people need to know about this because there's two factions there's two large factions there there's a lot of gray area as well but there is the group of people who think oh big food is out to get me they just want to sell me some processed crap with trans fats and high fructose corn syrup because I'll get fat and diseased. And then their buddies and big pharma will have to sell me drugs to keep all those symptoms of my disease under control. And then there's the group of other people who are like, hey, there isn't anything like nefarious going on here. This is just business. This is just capitalism. And my feeling is that there's Some gray area. There's some some places in between. There's a lot of companies doing great things, which I want to talk about and I want to acknowledge. But there's also a lot of companies doing some really sketchy practices to increase their bottom line.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a fair statement. And I think you know, there's always a I think a balanced approach is an important one. And so, I I, I, when you were talking about um, food companies, kind of having nefarious motivations. I, I had an image of Smithers from the Simpsons in my head. And, and so I don't think it's that. Um, just having worked with a lot of different Fortune 500 CPG companies and and um, I, I don't think it's that. So I don't think food companies are sitting there thinking, hmm, let me put all these bad things in food and make everybody fat. Um, and I think In the current environment, particularly with all of the pressure that is out there these days, I think it's much the opposite. I think food companies are trying to figure out how to make food that's healthy, that they can deliver at a fair price, that people will eat. And I think that's the key piece where kind of, where that's where the rubber meets the road. And I think that's why, you know, change in behavior is really difficult for for human beings in general. Um, And I think consumer behavior is hard to change too, because people you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to food, if it doesn't taste good, you're probably not going to eat it, even if you think it's really good for you. So I think we can, you know, we can dive into that a little bit more, but I think that that's really the component that, um, gets lost. And I don't think the food, the food industry gets as much credit for because, you know, I've been doing what I'm doing for over 10 years and I've seen a really interesting evolution. Um, particularly when things like whole grain, um, flowers came out. Um, A lot of products were being reformulated with whole grain. So some really interesting work there. And then clean labels started kind of coming out a few years ago and some really interesting bumps in the road as companies tried to develop more clean label things. And what it really comes down to is that if it doesn't taste good or taste like what I think it should taste like as a consumer, I'm not going to buy it. Um, that's not to say that people's behaviors haven't shifted a little bit. So I think things that maybe five or six years ago, people wouldn't eat. Now they are more willing to eat. Um, So I do think it's kind of fluid, but that's really the piece of it um, that I think is, is important to know. And I I think of something you've, you, you often, you have said a few times is that as consumers, we have power to vote with our dollar. And I do think people are voting differently with their food dollars and the industry is reacting and trying to develop products in new and different ways that are reacting to what people want. So I do think there has been a big you know, kind of shift, if you will.
1: Yeah, uh, that, that's a great point. I love that you brought up the hip behavior because I didn't mention that yet. And one thing that's fascinating about what you do is you run focus groups and you've tested these products and I want to get into some of what happened during those those groups because although you can't name names, we can talk about people's general behavior and how they may want one things, but they're not really when, when they actually get it, they're like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not gonna eat this. But um, wh- when I first reached out to you about doing this interview, I had a couple things, couple of stories on my mind that'll. Link to in the show notes for this episode. And I really highly recommend that everybody listening go and read these if this is something that's interesting to you. So let's take McDonald's, for instance. I mean, Steve, the CEO, Steve Easterbrook, you know, is really revolutionizing fast food right now. McDonald's is on Fortune's Change the World list. I think they're number 25. And in the US market, McDonald's launched a campaign to remove all high fructose corn syrup from the company's buns. They ended the use of key antibiotics in the company's chickens. And then they're on this 10-year plan to transition their egg-laying chickens to cage-free chickens. And I mean, there those two changes, especially the the latter two, are potentially transformative, not just for the company McDonald's, but also for the entire food industry. But on the other hand, and I shared this article with you, there was an article, an expose, if you will, by the New York Times talking about how Brazil is being, well, they used, I think, uh some 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 terminology to to kind of paint that. What's that guy's name? Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. Mm, yeah. Paint someone like that in charge of like Spreading, they they mentioned Nestle in particular, where they're paying these Brazilian people, I think mostly women, to walk, and these are from poor villages. It isn't Sao Paulo or you know Rio or places like that. From these poor villages to walk around the back alleys of the Amazon selling Nestle products, and uh, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. But I want to dive into a little bit of. Of uh your perspective on those things, and I know I sent you the article and you read it. what do you think about the good I mentioned McDonald's is an example of that, and kind of like the more the the companies that are doing things like what Nestle is doing in the Amazon
0: well so i think I think it's a few th- i mean I think it goes back to what you said initially about how these are businesses so you know a company you know we companies Missions are to create consumer value and profit shareholder value and shareholder profit. Right. So I, I think when, and you know, so, so to the McDonald's example, where we're looking at different types of eggs and uh, one of the things that I can speak to is that consumers, there is definite confusion among consumers about different terms and claims and what things mean. And so I, mean, I think there's a really fun Jimmy Kimmel um, clip going around where he's on the street asking people what, what do they think of gluten and why is it bad? I saw
1: and, that. Yeah. I'll put a so link of, to that. Yeah.
0: Yes. So I, and I, and we see this over and over again. Um, cause as you mentioned, we conduct focus groups and things. So we are really in touch with consumers, kind of the average person who's going to work, taking their kids to school, making dinner at night, you know, trying to have activities, you know, just really kind of average people. And, you know, There was a, there was a gentleman in a focus group and he was like, well, I I know I'm supposed to have probiotics because my wife tells me they're good, but I, you know, do I have it in my yogurt? Do I have it in this other thing? What if I take a supplement? I I don't know. So things like cage free and, um, pasture raised and different things like that. I, I think consumers just don't know. So I think whatever hits the spin cycle first and that people kind of latch onto and it becomes familiar. I think that's the term people tend to gravitate towards. So I do think that it is incumbent upon industry to kind of educate people as to what some of that means, because there is an enormous amount of consumer confusion out there. That is one thing I I can say. Um, People, I think people generally want to be healthy. They are so confused. And at a certain point, they just kind of opt out of it and are like, all right, well, I'm just going to eat what I like because all this stuff is way too confusing to figure out. And back to what we said about how people are resistant to change, you know, change is hard if you don't know what you're doing. So that's where i think familiar becomes important. and then to the, your your the article you had sent me about nestle and we did spend some time talking about that and i think part of the issue there and it gets down to just it is a business issue is that the us food market is a mature pretty saturated market. so i think a company, you know any company because i'm sure nestle is not the only one, is looking to you know if you're trying to expand into new markets You know, you want to distribute into different countries and the infrastructure of of countries that are less developed than the U.S. is just different. And I think the means to distribute products are things like people going door to door and selling products or walking through, you know, parts of the jungle. I think it's just a different way to execute that part of their business model. You know, because we we don't think twice about things you know, if you think about the u s, there is candy available everywhere. It's probably more available here than it is in other parts of the world, but it just maybe seems so counter and kind of strange that people are walking door to door selling things to people that probably don't have the means to buy a whole lot anyway. So I definitely think it's just you know a business decision. I don't think it's I think it's just maybe more mostly a distribution issue,
1: yeah i I know what you mean. and we also have to take responsibility and yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too much into Brazil because most of the people who listen to this, although we do have some Brazilian listeners, it's one of the countries, one of the 160 countries we're downloaded in, and is, m- Most of the listeners are in the U S they're in Canada. They're in the UK. Yeah. So let, let's focus on that a little bit, but I'll, I'll link to the article and, and it's, I think important to read just to know what's going on. And so Nestle has done something else that kind of rubbed me the wrong way in Canada where it was it's really heavily promoting their products to kids specifically chocolate milk to drink after hour long soccer game you know to these like 12 year olds and it's like I don't know if the 17 minutes those kids were actually playing do they need like some high sugar it, you know, there's, there's actually mm. some research on chocolate milk and showing that it, it it can be a good post-workout drink, but you know, it's, it's a little questionable, but like you said, it's a business and ultimately we're consumers. We've got to stay educated and we've got to make those uh, choices and, and we can drive change and do drive change with our behavior.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, I know you and I have had some interesting discussions about millennials, but I do think (laughs) that millennials have driven some of the change that we're observing in the food industry in the U.S. And I don't have exact statistics to quote on this, but years ago, household penetration for food shopping in a traditional grocery store was almost 100%. And that has changed dramatically. And I don't know what the current figures are, but Things like superstores and dollar stores and online and meal service providers and all of those things are completely shifting how people acquire food. So the channel has changed quite a bit and that's really being driven by behavior change and people wanting different choices. So the food industry is trying to catch up pretty rapidly and trying to figure out how can we develop products that can be sold across multiple channels of distribution and how can I continue to get people, you know, people aren't out at the grocery store buying all the time. How how can we sell, continue to sell food? So I think that is part of it. And I actually, I have an article that I should send to you, but it's um, a Harvard Business Review article about and how consumers love cooking, but they don't actually want to do it. So people are obsessed with watching the Food Network shows, but they don't actually want to go through the process of cooking. For so themselves.
1: weird, yeah.
0: Isn't that weird? And I think this is one of those changes that we're seeing. So where things used to be very traditional. I mean, the cereal business, is, for an example, is struggling. You know, when I walk down, I've worked with companies that make cereal over the years, and when I look, you know, think about what the aisle looked like. 10 years ago versus what the aisle looks like now it's very different and i know that they're struggling because people want protein at breakfast this is kind of one of the changes that i'm talking about consumers have become so attuned that they need protein for satiety that you know cereal is struggling so that's why you you've seen things with cereals that have more nuts in them cereals that might have yogurt coating or yogurt bits or different things where we're trying to kind of get this synergy with yo- with protein in the morning cuz most cereals don't contain a lot of protein, so interesting stuff like that. Children's cereals, there are, you know, there's been dramatic reduction in the sugar level and sugar content of children's cereals for some of this, some of these reasons. So I do think the food industry has been making steps to make positive changes and offer better quality food. But with those changes, people actually have to still be willing to buy the food. And that's kind of where there's the rub sometimes.
1: Let's talk about that a little bit. I remember a conversation about a focus group where these people say they want something healthy, but when you give it to them, their behavior doesn't match what they say. Can you talk a little bit about some of your experience with that?
0: Well, so that's, that's a, that's actually a research industry problem, too, because we have a lot of clients that come to us and say that exact thing. People say they want this, but they don't behave that way. So it's it's a fun problem to solve. But specifically, what we often will have is people will say that they want something, you know, if it's whole grain or healthy. An example that I can speak to is we were working with a client that wanted to develop something in the baking space, and they were really excited because their product was was clean label enough that it could be sold in the bakery department of Whole Foods. And they had done a lot of their internal work, gone through some tastings and felt really good about the product that they were bringing into the test because it had this label, but it also, from their perspective, had a great taste perspective. And we took it to consumers and consumers tried it. They kind of liked it. There were some slight differences in the color because, you know, there were less artificial ingredients and things in it. So... You know, some of the the color was not quite bright enough or some different things. And then when we actually exposed them to the labeling and said, hey, what do you think about this food label? The whole thing fell apart. Like, this is not healthy. I don't like this. It doesn't taste good anymore. And we were kind of like, well, what do you expect the clean label to be? Because this is ultimately this is a pretty clean label. And what it boiled down to is that clean label to certain groups of consumers means, identifiable ingredients that I would find in my pantry. So instead of the chemical composition of something, they would rather it read flour. So instead of the the chemical components of flour, they want it to just say flour. And that, that's a, you know, a, a very simplified example. So that's kind of an interesting thing where, you know, we're trying to evolve things to clean label, but because consumers really don't understand what a clean label is, I think in some cases they really in their minds it's clean because there's been a lot of people out there. I've read a few, I've read Michael Pollan's book in defense of food. I'm not sure if you've read that Ted, but he and others talk about five labels of food labels shouldn't have more than five ingredients. So consumers have kind of gotten that in their heads. So they're looking for five identifiable ingredients. If it's less than five, then it's okay. Then I can have it. And I've seen that claim on products across lots of categories. So there's simply five and there's five ingredients in it. So that's kind of conditioned people, whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing. I, you know, it's hard to say, but that's what consumers are thinking.
1: That's a good point. You know, what just popped in my head was Haagen ice cream. They have a, a brand that's like that. It's, I guess, clean label, and I would love for you to define that just so so we know. But it only has several ingredients. It's milk butter or, or cream rather and sugar and like vanilla. It's like, well, it still has the 21 grams of fat and, you know, 30 grams of sugar and like only two grams of protein and 300 calories per serving or whatever it is. And it's like it, it yeah, it it is so confusing while something that maybe has more ingredients, but has less calories and maybe a higher protein content. And, uh, you know, and then you're left like, oh, should I eat this clean label stuff or should I go after calories? And yeah, I, I could see why people are really, con- I know what I would do, which is only not eat either one of them, unless it's <laughs> like a treat, but
0: exactly, I know why
1: people are confused. I could see why that is.
0: Yeah. And so it kind of, the term natural has been around for a long time. And it's one of those things that it's like what does natural mean and you can have 15 different definitions because there isn't there's no standard of identity for natural
1: Yeah, arsenic or, you know, is natural.
0: Right, and I don't think I don't think and I uh, I could be misquoting. Uh, I don't think there is a legal definition of natural. There could be, but consumers don't know. I mean, natural is a very interpretable term and I think clean label is kind of in getting to that place where, to your point, it's clean if it has a short ingredient list, but the ingredients might not be the most healthy for you. So is it clean or is it healthy? Like, I think those are two different terms. Um, But So yeah, it's interesting for sure.
1: Yeah. And uh, let's talk a little bit about how companies are struggling because I, I really feel like that's the story that's not being told sometimes. You told me a story about Campbell's Soup and how they tried to do these healthy soups but they caught a little or or they didn't do well. Can you tell that story? Do you know which one I'm talking about?
0: I'm not sure, but I think I can I can come up with some examples. And I, I think, you know, Campbell's is a company that's an iconic American brand that's been around for a long time. And I think they were very, you know, they've made soup in a can for a very long time and in the last maybe 5 to 10 years even, you know, they've taken soup out of the can and put it in a lot of different packs and different things. And I don't currently work with Campbell. So I'm not, I'm just speaking about this from a consumer perspective and things that I've read in case studies and different things, you know, that they have tried to launch products that were targeted at millennials or different things. And I think, you know, it's, it's been hard to make that shift. And the company I, I believe has invested in some other, you know, they've, they've, I think tried to grow and shift their business model through acquisitions. So they've picked up some fresh companies, so companies that create fresh foods. Um, I believe they acquired Bolt House Farms, which is a West Coast based company, but it's a fresh produce company. So I think that they've kind of realized that they have to approach the soup business differently. So that's why you you'll see a lot of things. I think they have a whole campaign out now with a, I think it's a black label and it says yes. It's like kind of like a yes we can or something is the branding, but they've really tried to shift their positioning to bring new users in because you know can the red and white soup label business it you know it's just consumer habits and preferences have shifted so they've kind of tried to move along with the times
1: yeah well um i saw a you, we had this conversation i know we've had a bunch and after our conversation i was over at my dad's who he's one of those confused consumers right where it's like is this healthy or I'll look at this. It's low fat, low calorie. He's, he buys all that stuff. Eats most, a lot of processed food. Actually, he does better, I guess, than most people because he does cook and uses fresh vegetables. And, but he uh, had these Campbell's, he had these cans of soup and one of them was kale, sweet potato. Mm -hmm. And as I looked at it, it wasn't, it didn't say Campbell uh, front and center. It wasn't in that red label can that we're so familiar with, but it said it somewhere on the can. And I showed him. He's like, "Oh, I didn't even know that was Campbell's." It's like, yeah, it's it's just funny how how companies are really struggling to you know rebrand and try to, I guess, get current with the times. Because regardless of what we see out there or not, or if we feel negative about it, the change. I feel in general is positive overall even though we could argue about whether cage free eggs is really that much better or how much better and how much better are pastured eggs compared to cage free eggs McDonald's is like making an effort to change and it's and even more important than the cage free I think is the a decision to go with any biotic free chickens because while we could argue about the eggs and how healthy is it and what what difference does it really make the antibiotic thing, I mean, there's something on the CDC showing like that the antibiotics that we use in agriculture are causing these, these super bacteria that are antibiotic resistant that are causing big time problems. Let, let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about something you told me before, because I don't think people realize this. I feel like sometimes as consumers or the the people who I coach, they feel like junk food is being just like shoveled in their direction. Just eat this junk. And when you go to the grocery store, it's all in the middle. It, it, it takes up most of the grocery store, right? These packaged foods, plastic containers and boxes with uh, numerous ingredients on the label, uh, like we talked about. But you told me... Actually, that's not the big money maker. The big money maker is the produce, is the meat, is the chicken, is the dairy. And the stuff in the middle, they're they're making money on that cuz people I guess buy it in bulk or or buy enough of it. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so the the perimeter in some industry type terms, but the perimeter of the store is really where the kind of like from a grocery business the higher margin stuff is and where they you know are trying to add value so things like the in-store bakery things like the prepared fresh meals that you can take home and warm up and the deli and you know some of that those parts of the the exterior of the store are really where from a grocery store perspective they're making more dollars certainly they make money on the center of the store but the margins are much much more narrow and those businesses are are you know having a harder time you know keeping Consumers and it's not to say that every single food company is struggling. I mean, that's probably too gross of a generalization, but they're struggling because they are seeing shifts in behavior and people are trading off to other things, or they are trading off to not even shopping in the center of the store. They're sticking to the perimeter or using, you know, like some of the meal services that come up, or they're buying food in other places. So that's kind of part of the dynamic of the the food industry.
1: Yeah, and I'm curious based on what you've learned from your experience working with food companies, and uh, you've also been client of ours. You, you did the coaching group. You learned a lot. Well, well, let me ask this first. I at least have this terrible like habit of asking like eight questions at once. I do it to everybody, <laughs> and some people handle it really well, like you, but some people are like. One question at a time, please. So funny it happened to me the other day. So let me ask you this: Based on what you've learned from working with food companies and being in the food industry, what important lessons do you think you could share, or what do you think listeners who who aren't in that industry should know about when they buy their food or how they buy their food?
0: So I think that's a good question, and I I think. You 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 have to. Cause there's a, there's a lot of factors in in food, and one of the things that you, it's really funny because I have a my I have a graduate degree um, in food marketing actually. So one of my professors would always say, "People always say they hate what," and we would all be in class like, "I don't know," and he'd be like, "They all say they hate food shopping," and I think you know I'm a mom, so most women I know, it's like, "Oh, I have to go food shopping." It's kind of this thing. So we all love food. We like you know we want to eat it, but. The process of food shopping is kind of a pain. And so I think you're trying to balance a lot of things, any expense. That's the other thing people say, oh, food's gotten so high. Food is so expensive. So for me personally, I try to weigh out, you know, well, and because I think I told you this, I'm not a normal consumer anymore by any means. So when I am at the grocery store, I do kind of snoop at people's carts and like, oh, what do they have over there? What do they have over there? And I try to get a sense where I'm like, wow, there's not a lot of nutrition in that cart. (laughs) <laughs> mm, what do they eat? Wow. They have all those boxes of that. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm a little bit nosy, but it's an interesting kind of observational research thing that I'm doing while I'm there too. But for me, what I try to do is look at, you know, what is my budget? How can I, what do I have to spend? And, you know, what is most important to me? So there are certain, you know, proteins that I buy like different chicken and meat and you know, I have a large family. I have four children. So, you know, I'm trying to feed everybody. And, you know, it's kind of what all my kids eat. And my kids are pretty good eaters. And, you know, I try to spend a little bit more on high quality protein. If I'm buying vegetables. I try to buy fresh, but sometimes I do. I will admit I do buy frozen vegetables, fresh fruits and like kind of what will not sit too long in my house, like what's not trying to manage food waste. So I think for the average person who's shopping, it's, you have to balance what works for your household and what are what works for you from a food perspective. And I think that's the thing that most people don't know. And it wasn't until I took like a major step to change how I was eating, that I realized what works for me from a food perspective and what doesn't. So there are certain things I don't really eat. Like I don't really eat a lot of grain, really don't eat much dairy because those don't make me feel very good. So I've made a conscious choice to kind of not buy those things anymore. And I still have some of that kind of stuff for my kids because it's hard for them. They're, they're younger, but I definitely have a lot more fresh vegetables. And when I kind of, it's almost been Four years that I've kind of really shifted how I eat, and the the first couple of months it was weird. I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm cooking all the time, and I just have all this produce. and What am I doing? And it was weird. And now I, my my refrigerator kind of adapted to that, so it's you know it just feels kind of normal now. But you know that's kind of my perspective for for me personally as I just try to weigh out what what are my nutritional needs versus you know what do I have to spend and kind of how to allocate it from there.
1: Yeah, and. I know you read the Whole30. That made a big impact on you uh, and in your behavior. You were part of our coaching group, and we had all these lessons that were part of the coaching group, and you learned a lot from that. So you knew a lot about food and food marketing just from being in the business. But then you, you said a few years ago, you made that shift and started cooking more and started. Can, can you talk about like what were the things that you learned that inspired you to make the change? Like what really got you to make the change? Cause I, a lot of people out there listening know some of what to do, especially if they've been listening to this show for a while, but they don't do it. What was the thing that got you to make the change?
0: So, you know, my mother is overweight and she has arthritis in her knees and her back always hurts. And sometimes she is a little cranky and uncomfortable and, and, you know, isn't always running around and doing things and I had, you know, my youngest had been born and I went up the steps and I got up to the top of the steps and I was huffing and puffing and I was just like going upstairs to get something from the bedroom and bring it down. I wasn't, you know, and I realized and I I was 34 at the time and I just thought I am way too young to be winded. At the top of the stairs, (laughs) I have to do something about this or I am going to end up like my mother and sorry, mom. And so it, a friend of mine had told me about the whole 30 and it took me about six or eight months of thinking about it to actually really like wrap my head around what I was about to do. And I will tell you, it's the most powerful thing that I ever did for myself and why it was powerful was because it changed the dialogue in my head about food. And I now feel like I have control over food. And I, I mean, I was a fat kid. I've been overweight. I was overweight most of my adult life, you know, exercising and things here and there, always trying to losing weight, gaining weight, feeling like, you know, just so, so I've been there. It's not like I, and it was, it's hard and, you know, food is emotional for me and it's a comfort. And I come from a big, loud Italian family where we we talk about food while we're eating food. So, you know, and, and we need food to survive. So it's one of those hard things. But for me, there was something about that that helped unpack that for me. And I was able to recognize, like, okay, I only want that brownie because I'm feeling bad right now, not because I actually need to eat the brownie. I know how the brownie's gonna taste like. Probably gonna taste good for about five minutes, but it's not really gonna make me happy. So maybe I should do something else. So somehow I gained power to walk away from the brownie. And I think, you know, going through the program with you, that helped further that and it set some additional habits in place that have made it much easier. And, you know, I stop eating when I'm full and that sounds so simple, but there was a time in my life where I didn't stop eating until the plate was clear or I didn't stop eating because you just, there was more stuff happening or I would eat dinner. And this, I was at the beach with my parents and my parents all, you know, we had eaten dinner. We were sitting down to watch a movie and they all start getting the snacks out. And my mom said, aren't you going to have something? And I said, no, I'm not hungry. And she was just like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I don't feel physically hungry. Like I actually need to put anything in my body. And she was like, how can you do that? How can you just not eat? And I was like, because I'm not hungry. <laughs> but that's a behavior that I grew up with. It was perfectly normal to like break out some snacks. And it was communal. Everybody was having a snack but me. And then I felt kind of weird. But I, I just somehow through what I've been through with the whole 30 and then what the tools and techniques and things that I've learned going through your program, I just was able to put my hands up and say, no, I'm okay. and. I was okay with that. And there is shaming definitely was some family pressure and Oh, come on, just have a little. And, but I, I felt good enough to just say, no, I'm okay. And not to say that, that, I, I mean, in, in full disclosure, that doesn't happen every single time, but that happens the majority of the time. And I think what I've also learned through your program is that when you do stumble, cause you are going to stumble. And I think there was, an, I think you had an, a podcast episode or something where you said, well, welcome to being human. You've stumbled. Like you are <laughs> going to stumble. Yeah. And and now that I feel like some of these habits, these, these things that I've learned have become habits, I can recover pretty quickly and just, you know, I had a bad weekend. You know, it was a little indulgent and okay, Monday, it's, you know, I'm back to my routine and I just kind of move on and forget about, you know, the cake that I had after dinner or whatever. And I enjoy it. If I do stumble, I enjoy it and then I'm done with it and I go back. And I think I've kept about 40 pounds off in four years. So I don't think that's too bad.
1: That is awesome, and that is in, in forty pounds in, in four years. Most people, ninety-five percent of people, according to the statistics, go back to where they were, and it happens. I believe it was within a couple of years of uh, them finishing the diet, and then I think it was something like eighty percent of people put back on more weight. So you've broken through, and you know I want to acknowledge and commend you for that because. It's, uh, you know, it's so important, although, you know, you had different things leading up to creating that change for you. I'm, I'm glad that we were able to, to play a part in it.
0: Absolutely. And I, I honestly think, and and so one of the things that I've added is exercise. And I definitely don't think I would be where I am without that piece of it. And you've certainly taught me the right way to exercise and in a way that's effective, and fits into my schedule. And that, that is huge for me because there's the mental shift because it's all really, I think the battle of our waistlines and disagree with me if you want to is more in our mind than anything. And I just think so much more, so much differently than I did before. And I think the exercise piece of it was kind of like the last part that I really needed. And that's, been tremendously helpful from a stress management perspective and just kind of like clearing my head so that I am able to still stay strong and continue to make the good choices like I, I do think at some level it all has to come together.
1: Yeah and and thanks for sharing the the personal part. A lot of people don't or can be uncomfortable when talking about like pressure from parents. Although I see it all the time. We talk about fat shaming a lot in our society but we don't talk about the the moms, the dads, the friends, the the brothers, the sisters that are like, well, you're not going to have a couple of beers and some wings with me? Like, what's wrong with you? Are you normal? Why don't you live life a little bit? Why don't you relax a little bit? What's what's going on? And, you know, it's just, uh, th- thanks for sharing that because I know a lot of people can relate to that. And, you know, thanks for, for talking about how we've helped you with exercise in particular because it's so important. And uh, you just, well, Jack LaLanne said, Exercise is keen, Nutrition is queen, or, or it might be the opposite. I might be messing that up. But but he said you need both of them. If you have both, you have a kingdom, and that's what it's really about. And uh, you know, it, it, exercise. No matter how much you do, whether it's just getting your steps in every day or hitting twenty minutes to some body weight workouts a few times a week, it's really, it's it's just so important. And if they could make a drug out of it it would be a multi-billion dollar perhaps even a trillion dollar drug it's that incredible the benefits are so widespread and i think i'll get off my soapbox right now cuz i could <laughs> just keep going on but uh you know and, and you can get so much benefit for just a little bit and so many of us don't even do that so thanks for sharing that at least I, i'm curious though you know with the marketing and i'm sure uh, we, at least I've heard about like how food marketing companies they try to prey on our insecurities or uh, or get our kids to nag us so they get to count chocolate instead of the you know whole wheat cereal or whatever. I mean, are there anything that you can tell us about like? how we respond emotionally to marketing that we could like you said, it's all in the mind. And I agree with that a hundred percent. Is there something you could tell us about how to just kind of stay detached from some of the marketing that we see that may trigger some of the, uh, the cravings that we have?
0: Yeah. You know, and I, I, I don't, I've worked on some children's products. I haven't done a ton of work on a lot of kids stuff, but I, I don't think that, I think anything more so now they're trying to create healthier products that kids will eat and how can we sneak vegetables into things? We've done some work on some different fruit sauce pouches and different things and how can we get vegetables in so that kids will eat it or stuff like that. So I think there's definitely, I think think Michelle Obama had a large initiative to kind of increase healthier eating among children and I think that really did shift the perceptions of some, of the way food products are being targeted to kids. So I think like, you and I are of similar age. So I think like when we were little kids and there was, you know, you were watching the Saturday morning cartoons and things were being thrown out at us as kids. I think that was probably more pervasive than, than it is today. So that to address that one. And then I think the second thing where we're trying, so trying to decouple yourself emotionally from something. And and that's hard because the the food, the U S as I mentioned before, the U S food business is a very mature market and there are a lot of options and there are a lot of you know, store brands that are substitutes for national brands. And so one of the things that national brands try to do is to establish an emotional connection so that you'll choose that instead of the store brand. And usually there's quality differences and some other things and it's what you know and trust. So you want that one over the other. And that's kind of how that, that goes. But I think if you're able to kind of identify, so, you know, if there's something, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something that evokes a strong emotion. like I can think of those old Maxwell House com- or the Folgers commercials, like where that's the kind of the coffee, the, the joy of waking up and there's those commercials where, you know, there's somebody making the coffee in the morning and it kind of wakes the person up upstairs and it paints this really great picture and gets you excited. And you can almost smell the coffee as you're watching this ad and you want to kind of come and get the coffee. I don't think there's anything wrong with ads like that because it's, it's trying to evoke an emotion and it's trying to help reinforce like what the experience is of having a cup of coffee but I think as a consumer, if you can just pause a minute and say, okay, well what are what are what is this commercial trying to get me to do? And then just maybe asking yourself a question, do I want to do this or not? Because we all still have choice. We have choice to to say, okay, that's cool. Maybe I'll do that when I'm ready for it, but I don't need to have that because someone's trying to sell it to me. And I think that's kind of the piece of it that we still do have choice and we still have free will. And consumers do have more power than they think. So
1: Lisa, I was trying to get you to 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 tell us we're all victims and that we should, you know, file a class action lawsuit against these big big food companies. But everyone listening, I'm sorry. Apparently, it comes back to our behavior and our choices, and we just have to, you know, we have got to learn how to how to change. You know, what's interesting as you were talking about that, I remember the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. Yeah, and you're like, "Hmm, I can smell that coffee. You can almost yeah. smell it right now even talking about it." But at the same time, like, you know what? I, I don't watch food commercials much anymore because I'm I'm streaming now. And uh y- you know, you talked a bit about millennials and how they're changing. I want to I want to ask you about the food trends. But one of the things and and I feel like I'm a little bit of a millennial at heart in some of my choices where Like I'm a full-time streamer. I don't have cable. I'll never have cable. I've had so many bad experiences with cable distributors that it's just not something I would do just because of that alone. Let alone the fact that I just I don't have that much time to watch TV and I'm not interested in like 300 channels, only three of which I'll probably actually watch. But like I I stream full-time and I. You know, I'm not interested in buying the newest, best car so I can look cool to all my peers. Now, I like nice cars and all that stuff, but I'm more interested in travel, which a lot of millennials are spending their money on. And you've talked to me about how food trends are kind of being driven by millennial millennials and how like it's that newest, best thing. And could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So, and that's kind of... Earlier when I was talking about changes in the channel so where people are shopping and buying food, I think that's part of it because millennials as a cohort want to kind of find the newest flavor, the newest cool thing. And so I was actually at a panel I was invited to be a part of a panel. It was a small trade and a trade group within the candy industry actually and I was invited to speak on a panel at one of their local events. And so there we were talking about trends food trends and there was ingredient suppliers and i was talking about research and one of the things we talked about was how millennials you know have driven interesting flavor trends like smoked salts and different things so they kind of want to be the one in their friend group who can find the most interesting unique authentic item in a category whether it's a type of hot sauce or a chocolate or a new coffee and you know i have a co you know so it's um It's very much alive and well, and they will buy something online and have it shipped directly to them and not even go to the store because it's kind of, you know, it's this cool company that has a mission they believe in. It's this product that has this really interesting flavor profile and how cool is it in this interesting packaging? Oh, and it's compostable. And wow, so they don't even, you know, they might not even step foot in their regular grocery store. They have a collection of things they buy on Amazon. Maybe they're getting, you know, HelloFresh or one of those meal kit services come to their house and then they're stopping at a convenience store for this and, you know, and they eat out. So they really kind of, and those are probably younger millennials without kids. Um, I think the millennials are starting to get a little bit older and have families and, you know, they shop, I think a little bit more traditionally than younger millennials without kids. But it's, you know, it's interesting. I think they are definitely driving innovation um, and authenticity. So we talked a little bit the last time about big food companies and small food companies. And so I think, you know, there's, I personally have a lot of interest in small food companies because I think they're trying to do some really cool things. But, you know, as we talked about at the outset that this is a business, small food companies have a difficult time scaling their businesses up and being profitable and successful and like having supply chain and having distributors and all of these things that go into being of a company of a certain size and big food companies are struggling with, you know, how do we create this small company vibe, but, but being a large company. So there are a lot of partnerships that are developing and acquisition activity that's happening and things that are going on. Um, There are some incubators that are helping these small companies kind of become something and then the, you know, there's licensing deals and things because, the big food companies realize that the small food companies are there and they have the power to be very disruptive. And this is kind of where consumer choice comes in. Consumers are kind of saying they want these different things. So these small companies have a have a chance. They kind of need a little bit of a push and big foods kind of realizing, okay, well, we need to help. So there's, I think, going to be a little bit more synergy. And this was um, something I learned at a talk that I was at over the summer. So I think this is something that we'll be seeing more of in the next few years, because at the end of the day, we all do need to eat. So I, I think, you know, that's probably a, a trend for the next few years.
1: Yeah, very cool. And and I'm glad we're we're kind of ending on this note because I was actually writing something for one of our lessons, and it was about food shopping. And I threw in there that we shouldn't complain too much, even though if if we feel like bombarded by these tasty hyper palatable foods that are not so great for keeping ourselves in shape but at the same time it's like do you really want to go back to the stone age at the beginning of tool use and talk to Mr Neolithic farmer and you know while we're getting our our uh, berries in uh, in winter and like fresh kale in winter because we we have it flown in from all over the place or people found a way to grow it locally without being dependent on the the bad environment you know with the, or the cold environment I mean do you really want to go back to that I think not I think we're in such an amazing time where we just need to we're in that that point where technology hasn't. Progressed enough to start giving back to us, or start enhancing our health with, like you know, uh, biological lighting in our homes, and making sure that we're our homes are sleep optimized, and you know, making sure our food is exactly how it needs to be to to support our our physiology. But I mean, we can kind of do a lot of that if we're just willing to change our behavior to do the hard things. To detach emotionally from, you know, not completely from food, but detach emotionally from the things that we just like to eat or the peer pressure, and just take control of our lives.
0: Mm-hmm. And and it's and that's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but yeah, but it is possible.
1: Absolutely. Well, Lisa, this has been insightful and and fun as usual. And thank you so much. I mean, you came on here. Everybody listening, she's she's here just to share her experience, share her knowledge. Uh, you've got no like book or anything that you're promoting. A lot of people come on here. It's like, hey, buy my book, by the way. So you just came on here being generous with your time and, and what you know. And I really appreciate that. Is there anywhere where you'd like someone to go to maybe check out Blueberry or?
0: Sure. Um, you can check out our website. It's blue-berry.com. And you can also check out my LinkedIn page. I think if you want it, you can just maybe put a link to that in the show notes, Ted. But yeah, those are two ways if you wanted to reach out, those would be great ways to reach out.
1: Cool. Well, I'll definitely do that. And I'd love to hear maybe some last words, if you have some, about change.
0: So, oh, I have a favorite quote on change and I'm going to butcher it and I'm probably going to misquote it, but I believe it's Maya Angelou who said this, that no one delights in the change that a butterfly goes through until kind of it's done. And the way I take from that, and when I actually read the verbatim quote, it's kind of like you don't, you can't really fully realize while you're in the process of change, what the change is going to be and how you're going to benefit from it until you've kind of, kind of like crossed the chasm. Cause it's hard change. I've gone through a lot of change in my life in the last four years and it is not easy and it feels really messy and really uncomfortable when you're in it. But then at a certain point, you kind of get past, it. you think you've almost gotten past it and then you keep going. And then when you really get a little bit further and you're like, wow, well, okay, I've really kind of, I've, I'm a very, I'm in a very different place than I was before. And you kind of have to pat yourself on the back and it is definitely worth it. So if anyone's kind of in the beginning stages of change, just stick with it. Cause it is definitely worth it. Not easy, but worth it.
1: Excellent. So great parting words, Lisa, definitely. You know, it, we, we don't like to get uncomfortable, but it's always worth it in the end when we challenge ourselves to do something that we know is the thing that we must do. So thanks so much for coming on and can't wait till our next conversation.
0: Thanks, Ted. This has been fun.
1: That wraps up another episode of the Legendary Light Podcast. I hope you learned a lot from my talk with Lisa. I learned so much from her from speaking with her, and it gave me a different perspective. And I hope you see now your part in the obesity crisis, your part in how companies respond to us. Because the truth is that you know it's it's almost human nature to blame other people, or at least it's American nature, right? I'm an, I mean I'm an American, and uh, you know I struggled with that when I was younger, and we just want to point the finger, and it's like oh. It's you. But the reality is, again, we're playing a huge part in that because if a company is trying to sell something and we don't buy it, that company can't sell that product. And if it's the only product that they sell, it goes out of business. And you have the power. You have the power to say no. You have the power to not buy things. You have the power to, you know, you control where your dollars go. That's up to you. And regardless of the marketing, I mean, you're not a child anymore. You've been listening to the Legendary Light podcast, and I'm sure many other podcasts. You are a person who's educated, you're knowledgeable, you're hip to all this stuff. So don't ever make the mistake of blaming companies for the, you know, for more than their part, is what we should say, right? More than their part. Because definitely they're. There's some shady things going on with some of the companies who are doing things in other countries, especially, but in the U.S., as, as Lisa stated, it's getting harder and harder to sell processed food because we're all trying to eat better. So some of the things that they're doing really bother me outside the U.S. Anyway, so I want to wrap things up. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned a lot. Hope you shifted your perspective because what I aim to do in this podcast is bring you the conversations that we need to be having, but nobody's having, right? They're just pointing fingers, blaming it, conspiracy theories, all this stuff, and not truly looking at things objectively. And that's what we're about here. We're not about getting all hyped up about things that are partially true. We want to be objective. We want to rein in that hot cognition that wants to blame people and play the victim and all those other things. And we want to look at things with data. We want to look at things objectively. All right. And again, if you haven't been getting re- results in the past couple months, if you're hitting a plateau and you don't know how to get around it, because you should be making results. I mean, if you're taking time off because you're injured or something, or, or you backed off on what you were doing. That's different. But if you are working hard in the gym, if you're working hard on your nutrition and you're not getting results, there's something wrong. You should be getting results every single month. And if that's your case, I want you to go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash free to watch my free masterclass that will help get you super clear on what you need to do to break through that plateau and start getting the results you deserve that's it for me. Hope you enjoyed this. Have an amazing week and I'll speak to you soon.